Good morning, guys. It is a beautiful morning in Los Angeles, and I want to take this time to welcome you guys to the second episode of Apartment 679, a podcast where we, your hosts, casually explore topics surrounding the meaningful college experience, post-grad productivity, pursuit of happiness, and the human condition. I'm Paul. I'm Peter. And unfortunately, Matt couldn't be with us this weekend because he is visiting family in San Diego, but he will be back next week to join us for our third episode. Well, I just wanted to start by saying that we here at Apartment 679 are incredibly humbled by the amount of support that you guys have shown us since our first episode last week. Uh, We're going to be doing our best every week to bring you content that just gets better and better, and we appreciate you guys following us on this journey. Yeah, thank you so much. As Peter said, the amount of people that um, reached out to us with uplifting comments uh, really helped a lot, and and it just makes us want to engage with our audience more and and have more of these meaningful talks with each other. So we really, really appreciate that. All right. So what are we talking about today? So this week while browsing some content on Twitter, I ran across this really interesting blog post by uh, this guy named David Perel. Um, It's called the never ending now. So David, I looked a little bit more into who he is and what he does He's pretty much this content creator who writes and runs a podcast and also runs a writing school called The Rite of Passage. He also has a, a couple of very f- popular email newsletters that he sends out. So this guy is a guy that you know thinks a lot. He has a lot of short essays that he's published on his blog. And uh, the one that I ran across is, again, as I said earlier, called The Never Ending Now. So pretty much a quick summary of the blog. He starts by saying, or by observing that he was in a car in Manhattan, a van in the very back seat, and he was going somewhere with his friends. And he noticed that during that whole ride, everyone was on their phones, which is quite a natural thing for us our age to be doing. And the the thing that he observed, the interesting thing was that all the forms of content that that they saw ran into on social media was only content created within the last 24 hours, with no exception. So he says, we live in an endless cycle of ephemeral content consumption. And that we agree with because if you consider the time bias of of major social social media feeds, you know, Snapchat, the stories disappear in 24 hours, the Instagram stories disappear in 24 hours, um, et cetera, et cetera. So we're pretty much always living in this loop of content that only features stuff that is happening currently. If anything happened last week, it's already out of date when that's kind of crazy considering the fact that in the past, it even took a month or two months for news to even travel across continents to reach people. Whereas right now we can get it with just a flick of our finger, right? And then he goes on to, to kind of introduce this interesting topic where he says the medium itself is more of a message than the message. And obviously we can have more of a conversation about that. Um, in a little bit when we get to it. But that itself, I think, is is very, very interesting how the type of social media, whether it be Instagram, Facebook, kind of shapes our experiences more so than the message that it actually dis- delivers, right, than the content that it, it actually carries. Um, so that's the middle portion of his blog that I found very interesting. And and then he ends with something called atemporality. And, and what he wants to do with atemporality is he says for days or weeks at a time, he wants to escape the present moment and only consume content published in a different decade. And he says, for example, if he wants to learn about the 1970s, all his media consumption will consist of books, videos, and interviews published in 1970s. Uh, The reason why he wants to do this is because in doing so, he wants to embody the mindset of people in a bygone era and gain new perspectives on the here and the now. So 
those three are pretty much his biggest talking points in this blog post. And, and I found it and I read it after reading it. I thought it would be a very good topic for us to talk about because it could also segue into a lot of different things that affect us now. So what are your thoughts? So I guess what kind of confuses me is that um, as he's talking about atemporality, uh, he, he goes off about locking himself into a time period, right? And kind of viewing that perspective of that time period, which isn't a bad thing in its own sense. It's, it's just, uh, I believe I've understood atemporality to be a different concept. It's, yeah, it's a bit confusing. I don't, I don't think he really understands what the concept of atemporality means. Because, I mean, atemporal literally means not belonging to a time, right? So why would he lock himself into the 1970s for a while and not consider any... Like, if he, if he wants to only consume content from the 1970s, that's not, that's not being atemporal. He's literally being temporal, right? So yeah, I, I, I do agree with you. That was one thing that did confuse me, which led me to actually look into atemporality as a concept a little bit more um, because I don't think uh, David really understands uh, what, what this concept really is. So I looked into it, and this uh, American science fiction writer and philosopher named Bruce Sterling was one of the pioneers of this so-called atemporality. And what atemporality means, according to Sterling, is that in the past, generations have been defined by intellectual movements. For example, modernism and postmodernism. You know, modernism was a reaction to all to all the sudden you know, scientific philosophical. Uh, discoveries that mankind made and postmodernism modernism was a blatant rebellion against modernism right so that those people in time at that point were defined by postmodernist or modernist ideals and looking back in time it's kind of like a storybook you have a beginning a middle and an end it's really easy to differentiate what happened when where and why and what people were thinking during those movements because you know people were postmodernists or modernists but what Bruce Sterling says is that because of our transition in flow of knowledge, where everything is a network now, you look up something on Google, you literally have 10 search um, results, 10 to like thousands of search results that are categorized based on relevance or upload time, et cetera, et cetera, where you have a wealth of information at your fingertips all the time and, and information travels so fast that we're at a point where we as a generation, we don't have an intellectual movement that defines us as a generation and we're not postmodernists we're not modernists we're not really anything we're atemporal we have no connection to the past we have no concrete idea of what will happen in the future we are currently in a state of existing just existing within our own boundaries within the boundaries of what is happening now uh, we have no set of ideals intellectual ideals to define our experiences with the happenings of the now, right? And he says that is currently where we, as a generation, as an age of humanity, has entered a state of atemporality. So that was his philosophy of atemporality. And even before Sterling, there was one other person that defined it, but Sterling has kind of championed. Like the idea. Yeah, he's championed the term. And David, great. I mean, great article. It was, it was a little confusing, but I don't think he understood what atemporality means. You can't practice atemporality. We are living as a generation in atemporality. We uh, are atemporal. I guess I just uh, took it 
from his definition, I think he was, I guess, meaning to separate himself from our, from our present rather than exactly, taking yeah. time away as, as a whole as kind of like what you've been describing. Yeah, I think he used atemporality more as a, as, a, as a buzzword than anything else, right? I don't think his practice of locking himself in, you know, the, for example, in the 1970s for a whole week, only consuming, uh, consuming media from, from the 1970s for a week, I, I don't think that's productive at all. I mean... We as a generation already have a wealth of knowledge about what happened in the 1970s. All you got to do is look that up, right? We, again, as I said, we're atemporal. We have all that knowledge, media at our fingertips. Why is there a need to only lock ourselves up for a week from, for content produced then, right? We can have it at the same time. We're at, we're at an age where we can consume media and stuff can, created in the last 24 hours and at the same time look at stuff created in the 1970s. It gives us a more holistic view either way. So, I don't know. I, I think I do disagree with, with this time. I don't think it will add a degree of mindfulness that he is wishing it will add. And I wish that he had a follow-up update about what actually happened when he did this because whether he had benefits from, from doing this or not. But I think atemporality as a concept is very, very interesting. So I definitely agree with what you're saying about uh, kind of locking yourself into this time period isn't productive. But I think there is good to gather from uh, what his perspective was and I think what his intention was, right? Mm -hmm. So I think his intention from locking himself into that kind of time period and only consuming media from those time periods were to develop perspectives from those respective periods, like the 1970s, 1980s, which have kind of been defined right. by their own type of intellectual movements. Right. Uh, but rather than, rather than kind of devoting yourself to that period entirely, I think it's important to obviously consume a lot of information from those periods, but to keep them recontextualized with, you know, the information that we have nowadays, mm -hmm. all, all the bits of information, all the context that we have. But I think at the same time, it's really important by doing what he said and consuming the information that we develop perspectives, especially if, especially when we're kind of speaking to people that live through those generations that still maintain those perspectives. I think that is very important when we engage with other individuals to take in all kinds of perspectives so that, you know, you're not just, we can say what we want. We grew up in this generation, but people have their own experiences and we want to approach arguments, debates, you know, productively willing to engage, willing to kind of develop our own perspective using information that others have brought to the table before. That, that makes sense. I, I think one thing that I do want to mention in, in your line of thought is that personally, when I like, I remember this when I watched the movie Midnight in Paris. Have you watched that movie? I actually haven't. No. So it's a great movie. You have to watch it. So I, I watched that movie and, and I'm a big, big nerd about like Fitzgerald, um, Picasso, all the, all the artists, artists from back then. I, I love that stuff. So when I watch that, it's like this whole, the whole film is imbued by the sense of nostalgia. Like things were better back then. These people were smarter back then. These people thought in a completely different intellectual way versus today. And, and I just don't think that's true. I think the definition of creativity, of artistic expression, of intellectual thought, I think that has changed. Not the smarts or not the people that are, you know, not the people. I think it's just our ideas of those things have changed. And I think locking yourself back in just consuming media from that time period will give you this sense of nostalgia where if you do this too often, you might even think things were so much better back then. 
you know, I would much rather live and interact with the people back then than the people now. Because even in me, uh, someone who loves the arts, someone who loves and really admires and respects those artists and authors, I sometimes think, man, like I, I would love to go back then. I would love to experience these artistic movements with the people back then. And, and I think it's music back then was so much better than now and stuff like that. And the thing is, I shouldn't be thinking that way because it's just our ideas of creative expression, our ideas of intellectuality has changed, not the people. I mean, I think that's a really cool point because if you think about it, we're consuming content that was curated throughout this period. We're really we're looking through some very rose-tinted glasses. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're looking through what the people of the time, the people that were in power at the time, had the ability to convey was the ideal type of world. We didn't really get to see any of the obviously injustice is going on the just the scientific like stuff that we've discovered since then i mean you go back then you die of polio or something and you have a vaccine now but yeah i mean it, it could be the same exact thing you you wait 20 years in the future and you know drake could be like an, an antiquity like a classic you know he could be retrograde or something <laughs> like, you know like disco right it's 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 that effect. It's just the effect of of looking back and, and having nostalgia. And I don't think that's productive because y no matter how much you want to live back then, no matter how much you admire artists, right? Admire like Poussin, uh, admire Manet, Mon like Monet. Like it doesn't matter. The artists of the now are the now. They're they're the ones creating. They're the ones that are creating a legacy. It, it, like you can study, you can admire, but you shouldn't want to be. Is what I'm saying, right? So I, I, either way, you know, I agree, I do agree with you that it is good to, to look at stuff in the past. I don't think you should immerse yourself in it. I, I don't agree with this guy when, when, it, when he says that. But I, I also do want to say atemporality, I think, as a concept, um, the fact that we are living atemporality, people may look at that as a bad thing. Like, you want to be connected to history. But I, I actually think it might be a good thing. The fact that we have no intellectual movement, we have no constraints to tell us how we should think, like postmodernist artists were postmodern artists. Modernist thinkers were modernist thinkers because they were, they grew up and were defined in a time where that was the thing. That was cool to be a modernist, right? So everything that they did, every way that they looked at at the world, wasn't a modernist viewpoint because that was a trend of the world. But but right now we have no type of intellectual trend, which gives people so much more room to create and express and think in ways that never been possible. Exactly, it's, it, there wasn't. People couldn't even think past the realm of modernism back in the day, right? So I, I personally think atemporality could be a great thing. The fact that we have no concrete... Or actually, like to interject by saying it. They could have thought past it, but that kind of information was not being readily distributed to anyone. Like, no one was kind of bringing that together with no forums That's for true. a common thought. Yeah, if you think about it logically, yeah, maybe you're, you're right. Like, people so had the ability to be that cre creative, but they didn't have the technology to kind of disperse that information to other people. So while definitely this concept of living in the present is, I think, really important, right? And, you know, we have access to this incredible base of knowledge, you know, with the internet, the web, that, you know, humankind has really never had access to all of this info at the same time to, like, mm -hmm. build our perspectives off of. There's actually a problem with information inundation, I think, to where you literally have so much information at your fingertips. Obviously, a lot of this information is kind of in differing angles, right? Everyone has opposing viewpoints and there's so much information presented that is actually in support of each of these different viewpoints that you almost, it becomes really impossible sometimes to even make up your mind about what to believe in, right? 
Mm-hmm. I think the, like the source of information gets diluted. We have our channels. We have you know obviously there's CNN, Fox, Washington Post, Atlantic, Facebook. Like all these different news channels have different levels of you know subjectivity that isn't presented readily. No one's gonna say oh this is purely an opinion piece. Like they'll they'll tell you it's an opinion piece, but but you won't know how much credibility each of these authors have without doing strict research. But these news articles come to the fore really quickly. Exactly right. Uh, the, uh, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. There's just so much. And, and, and I know that earlier I said uh, individuals are able to, without constraint, think and develop their own ideas. But I feel like you allow a bunch of people to do that and you just have so much information in so many different facets, so many different opinions that as an individual trying to even curate what you believe in, it, it'll be hard to absorb all that info and then spit it back out in a way that you can confidently say this is what i believe in mm-hmm. right and i i really honestly don't believe like i can't i do not blame people nowadays for following pretty misinformation because i mean one of the things about human psychology is when you're presented with a piece of information again and again and again even if you know it's false like sometimes that being presented with that more and more will lead you to even sometimes start subconsciously believing it or taking it in at full face value, exactly. which is a huge problem, I think. I mean, obviously, in light of this pandemic, we mentioned last week, misinformation spreads like wildfire. And I, I honestly, true to heart, like believe that most people have good intentions when they're sharing these things. And I think that's why it spreads so quickly, mm-hmm. because people are putting any information they can to the fore because they want to help people. They want to they want to help their family, and regardless of whether it's guided or not. I mean, we come from a like a pretty scientific background. Yeah. So I think it's easy. I mean, it, for us, we default to you know we we think about you know the scientific method. We look at peer reviewed mm-hmm. articles. I think that is the gold standard for what people should be looking towards. The World Health Organization, the CDC, and the crazy part is that these organizations have so much like not necessarily power but influence that or credibility actually credibility credibility, is what i'm talking about makes sense and if they make one minor slip up it's amazing how that quickly changes public opinion in the other direction Mm. right i think one of the big mistakes that the the world health organization made early on was first of all not putting a lot of credence to you know personal face masks i think the more research I mean, the thing is, they're working off the research they have, right? And research evolves, but not everybody understands that. Mm-hmm. People think that, oh, well, you were wrong, so how can you ever be right again, right? Mm-hmm. Some people have that belief. Yeah. And I think a really, really major one was there was a mistake in the communication. They said there was a difference. There's a huge difference between being an asymptomatic individual and being a pre-symptomatic individual. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then that, that... And pre-symptomatic individuals are ones that can spread, but then that confusion in the wording med- led a lot of individuals to not think that you can spread this mm-hmm. virus without showing symptoms, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, just that... Just didn't want to keep going into COVID-19, but it just illustrates my point that even, like, the most credible organizations lose their credibility really fast once one or two... Because of the spread of information, because of the easily... Misinformation is like a virus on its own. I think that's like a really mm. interesting... Okay, that's... Hey, that's something that... That's a catchy phrase to use. Like COVID-19 and the virus, misinformation, I think... In my opinion, it can be... It's, it's, it can be worse than this virus, mm. right? With the way it affects, you know, society as a whole. Mm-hmm. But I kind of wanted to bring that information inundation idea into a topic that Matt uh, wanted to bring up uh, for this podcast. Uh, okay. We watched a... I don't know if you heard recently, but there was a, like a really large antitrust hearing. Yeah, so I, I was at work when I, when I heard about that. I didn't really get to, to read that much in detail about it because it's been a busy week. Talk to me about that. What, what did you and Matt think? So actually, uh, 
it was like a pretty crazy thing because, I mean, these are the busiest people in the world, potentially. Uh-huh. These are the CEOs of Apple, Google, Amazon, Facebook. They brought them all together, mm-hmm. obviously over Zoom because we're not having large gatherings, to have a congressional hearing to discuss their antitrust practices, Okay, essentially. So it was a pretty much a like a multiple hour grilling session <laughs> of, yeah, of each of these huge leaders in the CEO industry. And for different reasons, Apple, for example, they... They have control of the App Store, and that is a huge information. And it's just, the App Store is like pretty much an economic powerhouse with how many small businesses it powers, how many jobs it creates Mm -hmm. just through being able to reach people through iPhones. Okay. Google is a huge player in the information space. They were accused by Congress of stealing information from other companies and redirecting people through their search engines back to their own services. Because if you think about it, Google wants you to, keep you wants to keep you in their ecosystem right Mm, mm -hmm. they want you to be constantly using google they want you to be looking up search results through google and getting you ads through that entire experience so they can actually prioritize themselves so it's like a self-serving loop is what google is doing right Right? and if you think about it literally the majority of people like not even like a large percent but the majority of people use google as a search engine so Mm. they're gaining money through each one of those searches each one of those ads they present okay and that leads you to the business you choose, right? So that's true. Google can tailor the businesses it, you choose. It's so much. It's so much power, so much and it's power. actually crazy. So then, I think one of the most stark examples that Congress brought up was, if I'm using the word Congress incorrectly, I believe I believe it was a congressional hearing. <laughs> <laughs> we can we can fix just that up. the opposition is is what you're, mm-hmm. you're so talking about. It was it was really fun to watch it, like Republican and Republicans and Democrats tag teaming against. <laughs> Against these CEOs of yeah, these large yeah. companies, but uh, one of the biggest examples they brought up was I think Google was displaying out of those lyrics, but from, from a company called Genius, mm-hmm. they were okay. just copying their lyrics and pasting them like onto their own search engine results so that people would be redirected away from them and back oh, towards back Google's to, services. Okay. Right? I think it was lyrics, and Google probably has a great rebuttal for that too. So don't take that at face value. It's just what congress presented but i guess the entire point of what i'm getting at is apple google amazon facebook the services that they provide are so powerful and so pretty much prevalent to everybody's everyday lives that the government has to take notice and they Mm -hmm. have taken notice okay because they're responsible for i mean the crazy part is that they're private companies and they get to regulate what they show but they have sway over almost the entire American population because who doesn't use at mm-hmm. least one of those services, right? Mm-hmm. So Yeah, that 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 is insane. And, and I think that's also segues very, very well into one of the, the other concepts that Perel mentioned in his blog, which was the medium portion, that the medium itself is the message versus the actual message itself, right? Because you were talking about, you know, Apple, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and, and all of these... All four of these platforms, including Amazon, can be used to spread information, right? Mm-hmm. Especially the social media ones, right? Let's consider even Twitter, right? Twitter is used all the time to spread messages. And as a user, there is like CNN will post an article, right? If I'm just reading CNN, I already have to look at it through a perspective of this is CNN. The things that I'm reading is going to be slightly biased toward one side or the other, right? You take that, you put it on Twitter, and that's a second medium added to the actual message, right? Went through CNN, went through Twitter, and the the way that Twitter puts it into its perspective is who retweeted this? How am I getting this via Twitter? Which user 
is the one that exposed me to this piece of information and why are they retweeting it? And right? wow, that's even before you've gone to before the title you've gone the to article. the actual message, right? Yeah, it's not, you don't even read the title of the article. You're already seeing where it's being presented. Exactly. And so who's saying it, right? if you're literally getting so much of this stuff, if you're inundated, as you said, information, so much information is getting thrown at you at a 24-hour period and your brain has to process through all of this, like who retweeted this? Why is this retweeted? Who posted this article in the first place? The, that amount of information, I think just for me to process everything, it would take longer than 24 hours. And at the end of the day, you, you get to a point where you're like, okay, I have absorbed all this information. I have no idea what I think about it, right? I might think this way, I might think that way. But you're living every day where at the end of the day, you have all this wealth of information at your finger, fingertips, but no way to really understand it and create your own perspectives about it. If because you know. it just keeps changing. It right? just keeps changing. And, and the medium itself speaks it. Like if you're, you know, Twitter is political, Twitter is philosophical. Twitter as a medium encourages free thought, right? Instagram, on the other hand, is curated, right? People want to show you what only what they want to show you. The on best Instagram. portions of their own lives. Exactly. So when you go on Instagram and Twitter, you again already have to interpret the news or the or or the information you see on these two mediums based on the category of what the medium actually is. I'm not gonna look at the same thing on Instagram and the same thing on Twitter the same way, right? And that again speaks to the fact, I mean, even Matt said, and Matt wrote down his thoughts for us for this podcast, he said, what I think resonated with me most in the article is the idea that the medium of communication rather than the content of the communication is in, is in the message. Since the medium is so high volume and bounded to a limited time scale, we truly are stuck in our present, not realizing where we are or where we ought to go. Uh, great writing, <laughs> Matt, you should just write your own blog post about that stuff. But uh, there was another quote in the blog post that I found was interesting. Um, it's from it's from Tim Wu writing in The Attention Merchants, and he says, any and all information that one consumes, pays attention to, will have some influence. As William James observed, we must reflect that when we reach the end of our days, our life experience will be equal to what we have paid attention to, whether by choice or by default. We are at risk without quite fully realizing it of living lives that are less our own than we imagine, right? So we take so much of our lives trying to interpret the actual medium of the message rather than the message itself that at the end of our lives, we are just a product of what other people want us to think. I mean, I think the scariest part too is that um, the sources that we like take this information from, their end goal isn't necessarily the betterment of the human population as a whole. That's true. Right? So that's the, it's a really scary part because like those same companies that are providing us this information, Facebook is a huge source of news for a lot of people. Instagram, even from connecting us to, uh, to people that we might respect and believe their viewpoints. I think that the really scary part is since the end goal is profit, they have worked in actually tangibly ways to keep people in their ecosystems and present them news that they think will just keep them on their services longer so they can generate those ads and generate more revenue, right? Exactly. So there's actually for these companies, the scariest part is that they have positions, they have literal like job applications presented for psychologists mm -hmm. that study the human brain and kind of maximizing how they can trigger our reward centers mm. to keep us on the apps. Uh, for example, even even some video games have these kind of gambling style uh, mediums called like loot boxes where you just open them up and you get a prize and you, you pay money to get this stuff, right? You, for your whatever character you're doing. But this this kind of, this entire invention was designed to keep people on services, like I mentioned. 
And it was designed by people that knew that they would be keeping children on their services too. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, keeping kids spend, spending money, introduce them gambling through a completely non, it's, it's not a scary harmless. looking media. It's a, it really appears harmless on the surface. It's yeah. a video game. It's a, that's interesting. It's Facebook. It's yeah. I it's remember nothing. you mentioned this to me. Yeah. It's crazy. It's, it's, it's really scary. Yeah. Right. Because these are people that understand that each, you know, each, when you, when you flick that, uh, refresh on Instagram and you feel a little vibration on the tip of your finger, a little haptic feedback, you get the little hit of dope with me like, Ooh, keep me on, <laughs> keep me on, keep me on Instagram. This is a, I like this is more, mm. and they show you obviously again, like Instagram's curated to only show you the best of people, of people's yeah. lives. That really factors into like a lot of depression nowadays. I heard. Oh no. That. Yeah. Instagram. There was this, there was this actually I was going to mention Matt Diavella. I'm sure a lot of our listeners know who he is. He's like uh, a filmmaker that, uh, got his big start by making The Minimalist on Netflix. He sold his Netflix, got made a lot of money, and spent the next year like making YouTube videos. And now he's on YouTube, big guy. But he does this thing called Thirty Day Challenge, right? And he did this Thirty Day Challenge of deleting Instagram, right? All social media, and the the only like the only way because he makes his money off social media, so he had his team run it for him, and he was completely off it, right? And he said that was the most refreshing thirty days, not of his life, but he said it was a very refreshing thirty days. And it really helped him to gain a lot of perspective. And he recommends that. And he says personally, he's going to do it for however long a year. He's going to take some time off of Instagram. Um, because to him, just getting a break from this information overload was really refreshing. So then, as postgraduates, as people that have come out of this, our own bubble of, of college, of being inundated with different types of things within this UCLA bubble, right? You're just having fun literally every day. Yeah, exactly. Just having fun. <laughs> Not that that's what we did. We studied hard. Yeah, we studied hard. But, <laughs> I promise. Um, if you're listening, mom and dad. <laughs> after graduating and being exposed, I mean, we've always been exposed, but coming to terms, as we just did in this podcast, with the fact that there is so much information out there, there are so many ways for us to think, and li- we're living in this atemporal generation where we have the freedom to think and to write and to express ourselves, right? How do you think is the best way to navigate the waters, to be able to absorb all that information and be able to, to invent and to create our own thoughts about these things, our beliefs, create a robust belief system while still at the same time using these sources of media. Because information and inundation, information overload isn't going to stop. But it's, now it's up to us to navigate that. You know, that, that Paul, that's a, that's a super tough question. That I've had <laughs> yeah, to kinda... it's, a, it's a little loaded. I'm sorry for uh, just dumping that on you. No, no worries. I've, I've had to grapple with that growing up. And then coming to college, which was a completely different, you know, social experience and mm-hmm. with different sets of views from the conservative household that I grew up in. And I think that really helps me curate my perspective and widen it because I've grown up in these two different sets of worlds, basically, right? And I think for me, the the best thing I can do is use my moral compass to guide my decisions and the kinds of people that I want to follow, while at the same time going across the aisle to the opposite side and looking at the most opposing viewpoint and understanding that perspective, mm. following feeds that are completely opposite of what I believe in too, okay. to widen my perspective and also coming in between both of them too. I think my favorite thing to do is to literally watch the videos of popular like commentators, popular individuals, of people that have completely opposing viewpoints for me. And sometimes they change my mind. And I think that's mm. actually a really good thing that more people need to engage themselves. And I feel Mm -hmm. like the crazy part that I kind of wanted to bring up, uh, one of the bigger topics is how 
social media as a whole, social media is a pretty big topic today, right? Yeah. Uh, is a ridiculous echo chamber for the beliefs that we have. That's true. Because if you think about it, these algorithms are driven by things that we like to click on. Again, mm-hmm. like we mentioned. So if I'm, for example, following pretty liberal accounts on YouTube, on Instagram, that algorithm is going to actually, the crazy part is it drives you further and further and further. It polarizes you in either direction because the next video you're going to see is going to be about how etc. said this and it's a very emotional and strong viewpoint about something you already believe in. And then that actually polarizes you more, right? Because you keep clicking on it and it keeps taking you further down that rabbit hole to where you almost get confused by like, you, you start, you, you lose the moderate viewpoint, you lose the op- opposite side's opinion. And I think the craziest thing about YouTube is that the most emotional videos, the ones that rise to the top, mm-hmm. when you see a comment section on YouTube, it's a mess. It's like a morass. That's true, that's true. Like no one wants to be in that. I turned on YouTube comment blocker at one point mm-hmm. because it was so debilitating for my brain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess the point is that vocal minorities are rise to the top. People that are the most emotional have something to say. Are the ones that are more likely to comment in the first place, and you That's get it—you get your worldview warped to thinking that everybody is on one side or the other. When in reality, most of the people that aren't saying anything are just enjoying their day, trying to figure things out. They're trying to figure things out and make sense of this because you think, "Oh my God, everyone's like really this far left or this far right or this far up or this far down," uh-huh. and it's—I think that social media is a really powerful. Uh, really powerful in shaping our perspective. We think that, maybe we think that America is really divided. Maybe it's really not. That's true. That That's actually a really interesting. That's something I've never thought Maybe about. we can agree on more than we we might think. That's true because, I mean, wow, that, that blows my, that's a mind blower because I've always thought about America as blue or red, right? You have the left or the right. And that's all people, you see. That's all I see. But then we we forget that in having to vote, we have to choose a side, right? The voting itself, you choose a side. That blows my mind because to, to me, there's always a left and a right. The middle is never talked about. Talked about. But but I feel like the middle is most of us because because for me, I'm a I have political views. I have values and viewpoints, but I'm not so far right or so far left or even even remotely to that point where I will go out and argue my opinion on a YouTube video, right? But to us, that's what we see. That's what media wants us to see. I mean, the crazy part too is that people believe that if you're on one side, I'm using, I'm actually raising my fingers in quotations right now. <laughs> if you're quote left or right, you have to have a set of ideals that encompasses all of those things. But I like to pick and choose. I think I have certain views that are in one direction but others that were i I agree with the other side on those issues so Mm -hmm. i don't know why we have to be lumped together into one type of perspective that is like a monolith for each side because it's it's i think it's a lot more complex than just that so in conclusion your answer to my point was that you tailor your feeds to be able to see both viewpoints right but at the same time keep strong to your moral compass and your beliefs do what you think is right i think in the end it's like okay what do you think is right what is good, like what is better for more people mm-hmm. in the end. Not don't like think maybe in utilitarian point of view, but like what do you think is right? And I think as long as you use that to guide whatever you're doing, and as long as I know that's your intention, like I won't disrespect you for what you believe in as long mm-hmm. as you're doing what you think is right. And that's your answer for my question was which was how do we navigate this atemporal world, right? 
and that's so that's a really good answer I, I i really like that a lot for me i think i just get off social media for three thirty days and just the detox because it becomes a lot i mean that's necessary yeah I, I think that's something we should try that's actually what matt's doing right now right yeah that's that that is actually what matt's doing uh matt actually writes in his notes it's pretty funny he says he highlights this I do not have any forms of social media at the current moment. I am on and off again with Instagram, but I have decided to use it more as a time capsule, a look into the past, than a way to interact with the now. I really like that quote. <laughs> <laughs> this guy, this guy's a philosopher. Interestingly enough, I gave up my social media to this truly still experience my. This is still Matt. Yeah, my now. I would always catch myself doing things for the snap or the gram. I wasn't giving. I wasn't living the life I wanted to live. I was living to please other people makes a lot of sense right because i mean again as we said instagram and this is going past politics going past beliefs because i think a lot of what we talked about earlier in the podcast was our beliefs or how political beliefs or scientific beliefs are inundated through social media i think even just socially right us when we look at our friends feeds when we look at people doing all these cool things we're like oh my god i want want to do these they're having so much yeah why am i not doing these why am i not cool enough but Again, if you, if you were writing a book about yourself, you would want to highlight the coolest things about you, right? And that's what Instagram does. And, and that really, really makes you focus on the future and the past, what people did and what people are going to do versus what I can do in the moment. Matt, at this point, is attempting to come in touch with this atemporality. And, and that's sort of something what Perel said when he says, I want to experience atemporality and I want to go back in the 1970s. I, I, I don't think that's, again, as I said before, atemporality shouldn't be experienced that way. We are living atemporality, but to become in touch with atemporality is to be off social media because that really puts you in touch with what is going on now in your life, not in the life of anyone else, but in your life. So these points that we've kind of touched upon about atemporality and remaining in the present are really really like the, the basic tenets of uh, mindfulness and meditation. I think that's a really cool topic I want to talk about uh, in a future episode. Uh, but, I mean, we can, we can go on and on about this topic. There's so much to talk about. But we obviously don't want to keep you here for the rest of your lives. So I think that's where we, sh- we should end for today. Yeah, I think so. I think we've said a lot. Uh, we say anymore. <laughs> it's going to take forever. Yeah, so again, I want to thank you so much for tuning into our second episode. If either of our episodes so far has inspired thought and meaningful conversations, we'd love it if you could subscribe or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We also want to be in touch with our listeners, so we'll be dropping an exclusive email address just for our podcast next week on episode three. We hope you guys have a great day, and we'll see you next week.